Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, your Bible podcast for the spiritually curious and the religiously burned out. If you've been interested in the Bible but have yet to find kind of a good way to encounter or are looking for a new way to kind of take a new look at it, this is this is for you. Uh, we're going to look at the Bible as just like a story, like a piece of literature, and we're going to dig into it. And uh, I'm your host, I'm Kevin Lester, um, but I got a message here from Cynthia and Jerry saying, all the squares go home. <laughs> I wanted to say that as squarely as possible and I, and I got it on the first try, so go me. Um, I am. This is a weird episode for me. I am not at home. I am away at a conference in Phoenix, so I set up the microphone and the laptop to make a little makeshift studio here um, in my hotel room. It's in Phoenix, and good golly, it's hot here. How do you people who live here stand it? I just don't get it. Um, it's been kind of a goofy week. I, um, uh, I've, I've had fun hanging out at this conference with folks from the United Methodist Church and getting to meet a lot of new people. I bought an amp off of Craigslist from a guy here while I'm down here. When you live in Flagstaff, when you come down to Phoenix, you have to hit all the stores and things that you can't go to in Flagstaff. And for me, that's just Craigslist. Like Craigslist in Phoenix is nuts and Craigslist in Flagstaff is sad. So I bought a guitar amp off a guy and it turns out he's a member of the band Jimmy World. <laughs> Didn't know that and had to try and play it cool. But when you realize suddenly that you're in the midst of someone you really admire, I don't know. That's always weird for me. But let's go ahead and uh, speaking of people I admire, let's go into Luke 10. <laughs> Here's the text. Let's go ahead and get right in. Uh, I hope you're you're having a good week. Let's do it. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and let no and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But at the judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. All right, so that's our first little piece of the text. And um, it's similar to the to, to the chapter before. Jesus kind of gathers folks together. Um, he blesses them. He, he empowers them. And he gives them a mission to, to split up into pairs and to go out into the towns that he is planning on visiting. So they're kind of like promoters going into towns, getting ready for him to come through on tour. Um, and uh, he sends them out in pairs so they're not alone. And he gives them some specific instructions that kind of sound like the ones from the last chapter. Carry no purse, no bag, nor sandals. But he adds it to this one. Greet no one on the road. Um, which is really interesting. We'll dig into that in a second. But um, he sends out 70. So last time he sent out people, he sent out 12 of them. Now he sends out 70. There's potentially a theme here because 70 is the number of um, that they believed of na of nations that there were that were like created post um, the story of Noah in the flood in Genesis in their tradition. So this kind of idea of like there being a, a number of nations and there were 70, at least in like ancestral nations. Um, so Jesus picks 70 of them and he sends them out. So the idea is kind of going from 12, from the 12 tribes of Israel, where he was spreading the word first. Now it's going to 70. It's going to everybody of all nationalities. Um, 
because he's sending out 70. So that's kind of interesting. Um, this is kind of a precursor for Jesus kind of setting his sights, not only just on a mission for the people of Israel, but also for all Gentiles, which you've seen him identify with and uh, praise the faith of and engage with Gentiles in the past. This is going to become a big theme in Luke's sequel book, the book of Acts. Um, more to that if we ever get to the book of Acts. Um, so he sends them ahead. Um, and so we, we see kind of a shift in, in, in with Jesus before he was always kind of trying to keep things quiet. And now he's kind of like saying, go kind of build people up, get them ready. He's kind of allowing the buzz to happen a little bit more, which is interesting. Um, this is probably a sign that Jesus is getting more kind of intentional in his, in his ministry and in spreading, um, you know, his message and in doing his, his acts and his miracles and stuff like that. Um, whereas there was a time for kind of keeping it, it, it on the down low. Now it's kind of time for everyone to see it and hear it even more than they have been. Um, so, um, and he's kind of getting more efficient. He's setting up people ahead of him so he can kind of go boom, 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 boom through the towns himself. Um, he tells them to greet no one. Um, now in, in ancient custom, especially in Israel, the idea was you greeted people when they passed you while you were traveling. And in fact, amongst, um, Jewish communities, there was, um, if you were like a pious, devout, um, religious person, um, you would try to make sure that you were the first person to give the greeting. Um, so greeting folks was just an important thing. So, um, you hoped to be first when you greeted, but Jesus is like, don't greet anyone. What's probably going on here is that, um, when they had like that kind of rule of like, you were expected to greet people. If you were in the midst of some sort of intense religious activity, like fasting or prayer or something like that, um, you were kind of exempt from those kind of social rules. And so Jesus is like, again, as we kind of touched on starting in the last chapter, Jesus is getting more intense and more focused. And so as he tells people in the last chapter, don't worry about burying people. Don't worry about going home. We have to go. Now he's sending, he's telling that to his own people. He's saying, as you go, don't waste time greeting people. Just go. You, you need to get to the towns and get there. Um, so they're kind of like the, the their focus is sharpening um, as like a group and as a movement. Um, and then he tells them this interesting thing, you know, if you go there, pronounce peace, like use your words to bless. Remember dynamic speech, like they believe their speech like had an effect on the world. Um, so pronounce a blessing of peace on the house. But if they don't share that peace with you, um, Jesus says your peace will return to you. Um, and that's kind of interesting. Um, it's this idea that, that the people he's sending out, they don't lose their peace if the people don't welcome them. If the people aren't hospitable, you just keep your peace kind of to yourself. Like you're, you're not going to lose it. It'll just come back to you. Um, what Jesus and Luke are probably touching on here is remember in the last chapter, there's a town that didn't welcome them. And the disciples were like, hey, do you want us to call down fire? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. He rebukes them. Here, Jesus is sending them out again. And he's like laying it out very clear. If that town doesn't welcome you, it's okay. Be at peace. Like your peace will return to you and, and go outside and as kind of a message to them, like shake the dust off your feet, um, you know, to show them like, Hey, like, like this was a sacred moment and you're missing it. Like you're, you know, and in the same way that, you know, pagan cultures have missed it amongst us Israelites. Now you guys are missing it. And so I don't want to, you know, I, I'm leaving your dust here. Um, you kind of did that as a sign, but it's, it's, it's Jesus in giving them those instructions is, is basically telling them you, you're not supposed to seek vengeance on them. You're not going to be violent towards them. You're not going to punish them. You're just going to kind of be assigned to them and then keep your own peace and go on to the next town. Um, it limits their response. There's no fire allowed. It's kind of interesting. Um, and here again, um, Jesus keeps using the language of kingdom of God. Um, so, uh, it appears yet, no, this, the kingdom of God has come near. And remember when, when Jesus uses it again here, it's all about the present, um, what's going on. So, um, you know, there's this work that God is doing in the world that's blessing people and making things good and new and, and stuff like that. And that's like his kingdom. Like God was ruling here, you know, like this is where God is being established in this one moment and you missed it. You know, it's very present oriented. Um, you know, and then we get these interesting, um, you know, mentions of some, some Gentile towns. He, he first mentioned Sodom. Um, Sodom is a town. Um, it's a Gentile town, um, that has some stories that go way back in the stories of, of the Israelite people. Um, there is a, a story where, um, some people are traveling and they visit a place in Sodom and they're not welcomed, um, and, you know, as the custom was at the time, if people were traveling through, you're supposed to invite them in, you're supposed to keep them safe, give them food, stuff like that. They're not only not welcomed in, they're, 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 they're basically attacked and they have to flee the town. Um, 
And uh, Sodom then becomes a, a symbol in their literature for um, the like epitome of a sinful community um, because of this act of being inhospitable and unwelcoming to travelers, particularly the people that were traveling in the story were messengers from God. Um, so here we have messengers from God that are traveling around as well. Um, and so that's so Jesus is drawing a parallel there. And again, just like in the original story of Sodom, how there were messengers from God who were bringing like God and his message and being his representatives to that town and they were turned away and they were attacked here. Jesus is kind of like, yeah, and that's still happening today. And Jesus kind of is sad over that. He pronounces woe over it because God is coming by and these people are going to miss him because they're not willing to be hospitable which is interesting. Um, um, and then there's some judgment passages that Jesus takes a moment to kind of uh, speak out against uh, Chorazin, um, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he there's so there's three Israelite towns, and they're compared and contrasted to three Gentile towns, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. Um, and Jesus kind of almost like half praises the Gentile towns and half like put and more strongly puts down the Israelite towns. Um now, in the stories, we've seen Jesus go to Bethsaida for his little prayer retreat, and he's gone to Capernaum before, um, and he's done acts there, but he seems to do rather well there. So we're kind of, I'm kind of a little confused as a reader as to why suddenly Jesus is like, oh, like, like if you would have accepted what I did in your town, you know, you should have repented. Um, we don't get the stories of whatever must have happened in these towns that Jesus is upset about. And he's like, hey, you didn't repent. You didn't accept me, uh, even though I did great things among you. What a bummer, you know, um, and so it's going to be bad for you. Um, um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that's that's kind of weird. Sorry, I'm having a moment. I'm reading things off my phone and I'm, I'm, I keep getting messages, even though I put do not disturb on there. It's driving me bonkers. Anyway, um. So we don't get any mentions of these cities. We don't get the stories of Jesus being rejected there. But it. But what we do get is Jesus says their problem is that they didn't repent. Like he went there and did good things and stuff like that. But there was some sort of like change that he wanted them to make um, that they didn't make. They didn't turn around. They didn't, they didn't make a deliberate change in their lives. And so that's not going to work well for them. So as Jesus has already given some teachings about like, hey, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, if you want to be part of my movement, stuff like that, here's what you need to do. You know, you need to love enemies and, you know, all the on and on and on. Um, um, apparently these these towns have not done so. And so he's like, hey, it's going to get real bad for you. You're going to be brought down to Hades, he says. Um, when he uses Hades, um, Hades is a Greek word for the Greek concept of the afterlife, of where dead people went. And all dead people went there, um, from what I understand. It wasn't like a place where only bad people went. It was like everybody went there. And and in the Hebrew faith, they had something like that. They called it Sheol or Sheol. Um, I'm, again, I'm, I'm terrible with Hebrew. I'm sorry, guys. Um, where all dead people went. They all went to the same place. And it was some writings are like, yeah, that's where you go. And some writings are like, yeah, it's kind of a temporary thing until God does something different um, and stuff like that. But everyone went there and Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to be brought down to the place of the dead. And whenever um, the New Testament talks in Greek um, to a Greek audience, they often sub take phrases where normally it would be Sheol, like the Hebrew concept, because they're Hebrew people talking, and like submit the word Hades in there. So they're already kind of translating it for their more Greek audience to kind of be able to grab onto and understand there. Um, and then at the very end, after kind of those pronouncements, Jesus gives a reaffirmation of their sending. He's like, hey, whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So again, as he sends these people out, they're not just like people who are going and doing good things. They're like his authorized representatives. He first had 12, now he has 70. So Jesus keeps continually authorizing and empowering and delegating more people to be his direct representative. It's kind of interesting. Let's see what happens next. I'm going to take a drink. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions, cool, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So Jesus has sent these 70 people out. We don't get stories of their travels, but all of a sudden, boom, they're back. Um, They've all returned and they return with joy. And what they're happy about is they say, with just your name. You know, the, the de- even the demons submit to us. Um, and again, they're kind of celebrating how powerful um, Jesus is, that even at the mention of his name, um, you know, they're able to cast out demons as well, as they've kind of been doing. So again, um, to kind of hammer on this point, like whenever they exercise demons in the story, it's never through like some sort of elaborate incantation, and they have no spells or tools or anything like that. They're like, wow, just mentioning your name does it. Like, that's it. Like, evil... Evil isn't really that big of a problem, it seems like, for these people. Um, Because it's like with just your name alone, boom, it's gone. Um, And so Jesus has this moment where then he celebrates and he has this interesting passage. I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. That's the way it's written in um, this translation of the Bible that we're using. Now, um, this this gets a little tricky. Um, uh, Satan um, falling from heaven is an falling from heaven is used in ancient literature, particularly in Israel literature, as a way as a non-literal expression for what they say when a king or a proud or a high person um, who kind of thinks they are a god or kind of makes themselves out to be divine or a deity in some way are shown not to be so, or when they get their just desserts, or when they kind of fall from grace or something like that. Um, so you would say that they fell from heaven and they would use that, you know, in their poetry. So in the Old Testament, a couple of times it has this phrase falling from heaven. And it's always talking about like an, like a, a, just an earthly king who is kind of setting themselves up to be like a great emperor or divine person or something like that. Um, and, um, and it would say, yeah, and then they fell from heaven or we hope that they fall from heaven or something like that. So Jesus here says, you know, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Now in the Greek, um, if, if you, if you actually pick it out and I hate getting picky about Greek, but sometimes it's important. Um, this phrase, like the falling or I watched, um, I, the, when Jesus says I, I watched or I saw what in the Greek, very literally it's in the imperfect tense. So what Jesus says here isn't like, Hey, one day, a long time ago, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He says, I was watching basically. So as his students have come back and said, oh, we've cast out all these demons and they're kind of having this, this party of good over evil, you know, as in celebration, Jesus then like pronounces over them as like almost like a blessing, like, ah, oh, I was watching Satan fall from heaven. Like as you guys were talking, um, it's not so much, it appears not to be so much that Jesus suddenly is using this as an opportunity to explain something that happened a long time ago, like as often this passage is interpreted as. It's Jesus here giving exclamation about what's happening right now. Like he's saying like, yeah, we've gone out there and we're totally defeating evil. Like evil's on the run. Like they're falling from heaven. Um, if, if that makes sense. And we've already seen Satan in his interactions with Jesus kind of set himself up to be like a king. Like, you know, like I'll give you all the kingdoms if you'll just bow to me. And Jesus has already kind of said, no, 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 no. Cause that's not even real. Like um, you're not really king of the world. And so here Jesus is like, yeah, he's, he's falling from heaven. He's not a real He's not the one who's really in charge. Like he's not the one who's really winning and in power in the world. So um, that's that's what's happening here. Um, um, you know, and again, because Jesus has already reiterated, it's the kingdom of God. That's that's really going on here, not the kingdom of Satan or something like that. And he 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 continues to comment on that. You know, you will tread on snakes and scorpions. Snakes and scorpions were both used as popular symbols in in imagery and in poetry and in prophecy as just being like general terms for kind of like human obstacles um, when human beings are trying to just live and get by or do good work or something like that. It's like ah, these snakes and scorpions. You know, um, so just like yeah, like we're treading over snakes and scorpions. Like all of our challenges are just being pushed out of our way. Like they're not even challenges. Um, so don't take that literally and go handle snakes, you guys. <laughs> um, um, 
And then he, you know, and they're all happy. And then he, he kind of kills their joy a little bit by saying, hey, don't be so excited about this, that you're all so powerful and that my name is so powerful and that we're, you know, going out and, and, and making an advance against evil. Um, be more happy that, that your names are written in the book of life. Like this idea that like the, the powerful acts aren't really as important as these people have, have having already repented and being part of the movement. So again, they've already gone into powerful acts in other towns, but the towns didn't repent. And Jesus is like, oh no, like he pronounces woe over them. And here, these people are all excited about the good miraculous works. They're, they're kind of, you know, you can feel the fervor building. And Jesus is like, hey guys, do you remember like the, the miracle stuff, that's not the real point. You should be more happy that you guys have at least gotten it right, that you've repented and started to follow me as best you can so far. And so be excited that your names are written in the book of heaven. The book of heaven um, was an ancient way of um, that they would talk about like kind of um, knowing that God has seen what you do and being part of God's people. Like they would say like, oh, my name is written in the book of life, you know, in God's kingdom. Um, and so you'll see that phrase pop up here and there in the Bible. Um, uh, we have mentioned of the Holy Spirit, remember? Um, just like it does in this story, the Holy Spirit kind of always seems to be working outside of the normal um arenas and stuff like that that you would expect. So the Holy Spirit is here and Jesus is celebrating and praying and, and talking within the Holy Spirit um, outside of the towns, outside of the temple, outside of stuff like that. So we just want to make note of that because that's kind of interesting. There's some weird insider, outsider, like flip of the um, twist, twisting the story going on here. Um, and then Jesus further comments on that by saying, oh, I'm so glad that you've, you know, hidden these things, you know, the real things that are going on, like the mysteries and my identity and stuff like that from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Like, you know, the Holy Spirit is out there working with these people out on the outskirts, not working so much with the people who are kind of in power in the city, stuff like that. Um, and this is also kind of problematic because it says that he turns to his disciples and is like so happy that like, you know, the, the truth of things is being hidden from people, but you guys are getting revealed. And so you, you, if you want to have a moment here where you kind of sit with some tension in that, where you're like, oh, that's interesting. Cause you know, earlier in the parables, Jesus seems to be willing to go anywhere and talk to anyone. Like anyone's available to get the favor and the teaching and hear the word of God. We get that seed parable where all the seeds go everywhere on all the kinds of roads and stuff like that. Um, but here it seems like Jesus is like, yeah, like, you know, you've, God, I'm so happy that you've revealed it to some and not to others, um, and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of interesting. We're making quick note of that. Um, and then, um, there's a messianic blessing here at the end. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Like, like many people have been waiting for the Messiah, but you guys are blessed because you're actually getting to see and witness the work of the Messiah right now. So Jesus kind of claiming that for himself. Um, and yet they get to be a part of it, which is really interesting. So it's not just him, you know? Um, so just then a lawyer stood, let's continue on in the story. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Okay, so let's, after one sentence, let's stop there right there. Um, so there is an outsider outside of their group kind of hanging out um, and watching and gets to participate in the conversation. So maybe even though Jesus is talking about things kind of being hidden and revealed, maybe it's not as hidden in the way that we think it is because there's people who aren't really part of their group who are close enough by to just stand up and test Jesus right then and there. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Maybe Jesus isn't really hiding anything. Maybe when he talks about hiddenness and the revealing and stuff like that, it's more about how people are receiving it, not about how he's sharing it, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so Jesus makes a messianic claim, you know, Hey, like, blessed are you that you're seeing this happen right now, you know? Um, and immediately after he makes this messianic claim, a lawyer stands up to test Jesus. So let's see what happens. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to the man, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the man, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine all over them, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. So this is a pretty famous passage um, of the Bible. It's, the, it's, it's, it's often called the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and there's a couple characters in the story. There's, there's the man who's walking and he's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, we'll pick apart the story in a second, but first let's, let's, let's set the scene. So Jesus, um, you know, makes a messianic claim and then the lawyer steps up and begins to test Jesus. So it says he stood up to test Jesus and asks him this question. And this is a pretty typical question for, um, a, um, that, that, that teachers or rabbis would ask each other at the time, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, in some other gospels, you'll see people come up and ask Jesus, like, what's the most important commandment? You know, things like that. These are fairly typical questions that you would ask, especially if a teacher is kind of traveling through the area to kind of, um, to test them and, and get something from them. Um, when, when we kind of read the word test today, we often has a really negative connotation on it. And there might be a negative connotation even for Luke and his audience here. Um, but this was common practice back then. Like they kind of had a much more, um, they thought debate was healthy back then. Um, and that really debating and, and comparing interpretations of, of the law and the scripture and stuff like that was just more normal to them back then. It was something they would kind of do together. Um, so this isn't really, it's not, it's at least not out of the ordinary for Jesus to be traveling somewhere and someone to be like, oh, well, let's, let's test this guy. Let's see what he has to say about this particular, let's see how he handles this question. Um, so the guy asks, um, and he's a lawyer and he asks, um, a question, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, um, answers a lawyer by asking him about the law, which is just pretty perfect. Um, you know, what is written in the law? What do you read there? Um, so Jesus kind of flips the table on the guy. Um, and asks him, like answers a question with a question, which is very common practice for Jesus. Um, and the guy has to give his answer. So it kind of turns around. So he's kind of being tested a little bit and he says, well, you know, um, love the Lord, your God, um, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, so what this lawyer has done is he's actually quoted two laws, one from the book of Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament, and one from the book of Leviticus, which is in the Old Testament. So the so the love the Lord your God ones are from the book of Deuteronomy and the and your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself is from uh, Leviticus 19. So he knows his law well, you know, he's got it memorized and he's got his answer, like ready to go. Like he's wants to hear Jesus's answer. Jesus asks him a question. This guy's like, well, this and this, you know what I mean? Like the dur, you know? Um, um, and this is a very similar answer to other ones that we have recorded from Jewish teachers when they were asked similar questions. So it's not like some outlandish thing out of the ordinary, love God and love neighbors. Um, now, a lot of old laws would often promise people long life, like do this and you will live long. And it was often earlier in the law, um, in the older books of the Bible, it was presented as like, you will do well in the land that you live in. Like you'll have a long life. Um, um, it wasn't until later, like in the later portions of the Old Testament and in later tradition in Israel's history, where they started to interpret that a little bit differently as, as apocalyptic um, theology kind of comes into their, into their context and into their, uh, becomes part of the discussion within their, their interreligious, you know, thinking and thought. Um, it starts to turn from not like you will live long right here, right now, everything will be great for you if you follow the law, to um, you will live long, maybe eternally. So even if your life doesn't go well, if you do all the right things, like there will be like a reward later of long and good life, um, which is just kind of interesting to track. Um, cause the lawyer here stands up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, so, uh, that, that's, that's very much of Jesus's time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he tests Jesus. Um, and then Jesus asks him some questions and then he gives an answer and then she's just like, yeah, do this and you will live. So again, Jesus kind of puts it into the present, do this now and you will live. Um, 
Um, so will live being kind of both present and future tense. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and then it says, but wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Um, most of the time growing up where I was kind of taught to read these stories as Jesus being the hero in the story and everyone who has anything to say to Jesus, who's not like one of the disciples is like against him, you know, and is trying to, you know, bring him down and stuff like that. Um, I was like, oh, this guy wants to justify himself. Like he wants to like, you know, be the one who's seen as, as right and good and stuff like that. Um, really that word justify is the same word, um, as like righteous. So Luke here, I mean, it could be that he's saying this guy wants to like justify himself. Like he wants to be shown to be the one who's right. It could be that this person is asking an earnest question, um, to, um, to really make sure that he's, he's got it right. Like he wants to make himself righteous. And so he's asking a question, like he's seeking goodness and righteousness. And so he's like, well, and who is my neighbor? You know, I mean, he's asking it for himself. He's not necessarily asking it to try and catch Jesus in something. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. So Jesus kind of in turning the the table on this guy and asking him a question and getting him to give a good answer about loving God and loving others um, and saying, yeah, do this and you will live has kind of maybe brought this guy, kind of opened his mind from testing Jesus to really asking an honest, sincere question. And, and who is my neighbor? Like, okay, so who do I need to love so I can do well and live? Um, so it's kind of a, the genius of Jesus's response of answering, um, you know, uh, recognized leaders and scholars in his community, like answering them with questions to try and engage them and bring them out a little bit. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, that again, that word justify is also the word righteous and elsewhere when it's used in, in Luke and, and in Acts and in the new Testament, it talks about, um, people being innocent, you know? So it's like, so wanting to make himself innocent, this guy then asks, who is my neighbor? Um, that's really interesting. Um, neighbor in typical usage only meant a fellow Israelite. Um, but here he's like, okay, so who is my neighbor? Is it just, you know, my fellow Israelites or is it someone else or many people or what is it in Leviticus 19, where he got his original answer from love your neighbor. It's, it's, it's clear in Leviticus 19 that when it says neighbor, it means fellow Israelites only like the people who are like your literal neighbors and who are part of your tribe basically. Um, so, but Jesus takes that concept and then expands it and he expands it by telling that story. Um, so this is the guy and he's traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a popular road um, for people returning from pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. Um, so he's coming back from Jerusalem and going back probably to his hometown. Um, and this road was, was long and there was parts of it that were really dangerous um, so you weren't really supposed to travel alone. That's not a good idea. But here is this guy traveling alone. Um, and there were popular places along the road where kind of robbers could hang out. Um, so um, the so a robbery happens, you know, and this man is, is beat severely, like half dead, near death, um, and robbed of everything he has. Um, and it, there's no, like, reason given for why this man was robbed. It's just kind of happenstance. Um you know, so many people travel on this road and this guy just happened to be an unlucky one who was robbed. Um, so Jesus in the story says that he is half dead. So he's ne he's very near death. And remember, in their culture, corpse uncleanliness is like the worst kind of uncleanliness you could get. So if if you were to stop, if anyone were to stop and help this person and he turned out to be dead already, they would get uncleanliness brought upon them. If they helped him and then he died and they were still in the midst of helping him, Boom, corpse and cleanliness. Um, so, um, so he's laying there half dead. He's all alone. And oh, lucky for him, a priest comes by. Um, now, priests especially tried to avoid corpse uncleanliness. These are people who were, had to go work in the temple and touch all the sacred objects and stuff like that. It was basically, according to their custom, their job to stay away from unclean things at all costs. Um, and uh, some Pharisees, um, we, we have records, even um, have teachings where they say, even if your shadow crosses a corpse, you get unclean. Like you don't even have to touch it with your body. But if you just get close enough, you can become made ceremonially unclean. Um, so, so corpse and cleanliness is a big deal. So here comes a priest um, and he's going the same way. He's leaving Jerusalem to go back to somewhere towards Jericho. Um, so... 
if he is a priest, that means um, he is done with his priestly duties. Like he's not on his way to temple to go work. So it wouldn't really be that big of a deal for him to do something that could make him unclean for a few days or something like that because he's not on his way to go carry out the ceremonial worship. If he's made unclean for a short time, that's fine. And remember, unclean then, you could be unclean for all kinds of things. Some of the things were very natural, you know, about being human. So it wasn't like unclean was something you always chose. It was just like, oh, I'm unclean for a while, you know. Um, but this for this priest, it's a bigger deal because he is a priest, but he's not going to the temple so normally, um, there's what's considered like the law of mercy. Like if you're able to extend mercy, that should kind of trump the custom, like that takes precedence of it. But for this guy, it doesn't. He's like, nope, not even going to get close. I'm going to pass by on the other side of the road. This guy could still be alive. I could save his life and I'm not going to do it because I don't want to accidentally get unclean. So he goes by the other side of the road. Then a Levite comes and a Levite is connected to the priestly tribe, um, but it, it, it doesn't say that he's specifically a priest. Um, so this, the rules for Levites compared to priests were a little bit less strict. Um, but he still does the same thing. So he doesn't have as good as an excuse, but he still travels, crosses over to the other side and leaves this person half dead. And who's the third and last person to come but a Samaritan um, so remember when Jesus is talking to an Israelite audience, whenever they hear Samaritan, like they're going to want to boo. Like they do not like these Samaritans. Like they're, they're, they're not pure, um, biologically, like with their bloodline. They're not, they're not worshiping right. They have their own holy sites, which to build a holy site separate from like the authorized one is a really big no-no, stuff like that. Like, and they have like physical and political enmity with these people. Like, you know, like they have bad things going on. And Jesus in his little story chooses a Samaritan to walk down the road. And it says, when the Samaritan saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went over to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine in them, which were like ways to disinfect and treat wounds. And then he put him on his own animal. So he walked and let the guy ride on the animal, brought him all the way to an inn, and then just overflows with generosity to him. So pays for this person's medical care for him to stay at an inn and be safe and says, whatever more you spend, I'll repay. Like, just like how Jesus is always flowing with favor and generosity, whatever you need, give to anyone who asks from you. The Samaritan is using like the same, even like the same kind of language, like whatever else you need, I'll give. Um... And this is the hero of Jesus's story. Now, remember, in the last chapter, Jesus tried to travel through a Samaritan village and asked for hospitality and was rejected. And now these people who would be Jesus's enemies, he then, then the very next chapter, Luke has him making those people the hero of his little story against an expert in Israelite law. <laughs> like, this is like a Shyamalan twist. Um and uh, and then not all, Luke Jesus tells the story so well that at the end he asks to ask the person who do you think was a neighbor and he makes the lawyer who probably hates Samaritans admit it was the Samaritan the one who showed mercy is the one who did it right and Jesus then says yes do this and you will live yes follow the moral example of the Samaritan in my story. And go be that in the world. And if you do that, you will live. Isn't that interesting? Like Jesus makes their enemy the hero and he makes his own enemy. Like the people who are, who have kind of opposed and been against him a little bit, the hero in his story. Um, and the way Jesus asks it says, you know, who was my neighbor? Not who is being a neighbor to me? Like what, who, like, the way the guy originally phrases it is like, who's my neighbor? And in the way that he was understanding it is, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. So I need to pick and understand who God wants me to love and who God doesn't want me to love. Jesus flips it around and he says, who was being a neighbor? He puts the moral agency back on the person who he's engaging right now. Like he's saying, lawyer, you are the, the moral, like, agent like it's not your job to figure out who deserves your love it's your job to love and show mercy and goodness are you catching how that's different in the same way that in a lot of jesus ethical teachings he's saying like when someone hits you turn the other cheek 
Like, when someone hits you, like, it's not that they might be the more powerful one, quote-unquote, seemingly, in that situation, because they're the one doing violence, but you have power. And you can do active, like, resistance against this person. You know what I mean? If someone asks you to carry your thing for a mile, carry it two miles. Like, you are the primary moral agent. Focus on your behavior and how generous and good you can be in the situation, as opposed to focusing on them and their bad behavior. And Jesus flips it around for this guy in this story. Like, stop asking who's your neighbor, stop asking who should you be good to, and just go be good, is how Jesus' story works. And it works that all out by the end, where he has to get this guy to admit, I should go be a, be a neighbor, as opposed to asking who is my neighbor. Um, so the moral impetus is on this person to just go love everybody. Like whoever, you, whoever, whenever you show mercy, you're the one doing it right, no matter who you're showing it to. Um, and we see this, you know, like um, in a lot of Jesus' teachings, you know, it's like it's it's like Jesus saying, "Go pick the speck out of your eye instead of the log in someone else's." Stop asking who's your na- who deserves your love, and just go be a good lover and a good merciful person. Um, so, uh, so it's 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 interesting. It's it's a real Jesus is 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 very clever. And he, he, he draws this guy in with, with a couple of questions and then gets him to admit at the end what the right thing is. He brings it out of the guy instead of just telling him exactly what to do. It's kind of interesting. Let's continue on in the text. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So um, we get two story. Jesus goes over to a woman's house um, and it seems to be her house and there's no mention of her husband. It's welcomed into her home, which is interesting. Um, and uh, and uh, she, it's, it's a woman named Martha and then her sister is there and Martha's doing the work that would kind of be expected of her as the head woman of the household. Like she's being the hostess. Like she's going around like preparing food, getting things ready. Um, um, you know, like I left, you know, all, all the work she says, like when someone came over to your house, remember you welcomed travelers and you provided for them. So she's providing for Jesus and all of his students, whoever, whoever came in with him. Um, and her sister is there and she should be helping out in the work. Like that was, would be their custom. But instead it says very distinctly that, that Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he was saying. So Jesus is there and he's teaching like a rabbi does. And all his disciples are sitting at his feet like disciples do. And Mary is also sitting at his feet and listening to what he's teaching. So Mary is taking on the position of a disciple. She's taking on that role. She's putting herself into there. There's something about Jesus where she feels invited and she accepts that invitation and sits at it. Martha, meanwhile, has, is doing lots of work and is getting everything ready. Um, and um, so Martha is showing her devotion and showing her care for, for visitors um, in the culturally appropriate way of going and being the hostess, you know. Um, whereas Mary is kind of breaking custom, but also showing devotion by taking on the position of a disciple. And then Martha brings this as an issue to Jesus. Like, like she's, you know, don't you care that this is happening to me? Um, and Luke, Luke, again, characterizes Jesus, as he has before in the book, as being really cool with women, um, and especially in letting them break custom to follow him, to be disciples, um, to be part of what he's doing in the world. Um, and, uh, this, again, this would be scandalous in the same way that it was scandalous for a, you know, a woman to bathe Jesus' feet at one place. It was scandalous for women to be following Jesus around as his followers here for one to be deliberately sitting down at his feet and being discipled. That's, that is not like, okay. That's not what people did at the time. But Jesus is like, yeah, like doesn't seem to have issue with it. It doesn't even come up as a topic of discussion in the book until Martha brings it up. Um, so really interesting. Jesus is breaking some, some social barriers there. Um, um, 
And moreover, he not only says that it's okay for Mary to do that, but he's like, no, Martha, you're worried and distracted and you only need to do one thing. Like he also invites Martha to stop fulfilling her socially accepted like role in the household and take on a brand new one of being a disciple and sitting and listening to her as well. He doesn't say that what she's doing is wrong, but he's like, your sister has chosen the better one and you are worried and distracted and you need only one thing right now. You can come and sit and listen as well. Very interesting, this guy. Um, um, and, and this also kind of fits with, um, real quick, with some stories in the last chapter where Jesus like invites people to break social customs about burying their family or going home to say goodbye and stuff like that in order to join his mission. Luke, Jesus also, Luke also now has Jesus breaking custom now as his mission is kind of intensifying. He's like, yeah, like Mary, Martha, you should both be sitting here. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And that's the end of our text this week. It's a little bit shorter than normal. Um, but um, we'll go ahead and jump into our lo-fi questions. I'm going to take a quick drink. So lo-fi question number one, um, just what is God like in this part of Luke? Um, so kind of trying to stay focused on just this chapter, um, we see Jesus, you know, this divine person, um, empowering and authorizing others to go be his representatives and do the same work that he's doing in the world. And this time he sends out 70 of them. So the number has increased of the people he's willing to empower and send out and let identify with him fully and be his representatives in the community. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Like God is just kind of in the midst of doing that. Like, it doesn't seem like God is like, no, God's not like a micromanager. God doesn't, um, he's not like a perfectionist. Um, here, he's constantly being like, yeah, you guys go out and do this, including after they've really messed up in a lot of ways over the last couple chapters. Like the disciples, again, aren't shown always in the greatest light, but here Jesus is like, yeah, go, go do it. Go do the good work. You know, cast out demons. You use my name. I don't care. Um, <laughs> I'm not like embarrassed of them or anything like that, which is kind of interesting. So that's what God is like. Uh, second, God, uh, God grants freedom. As they travel around the towns, he's like, don't force people to accept you and accept my message and accept the kingdom of God. Like, if they reject you, like, just kind of go out and 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 let them know that they made a mistake, you know, wipe the dust off your feet and kind of pronounce it against them. But don't punish them. Don't seek revenge. Don't call down fire. Like, you're very limited in your response. Like, like it seems like Jesus is all about, like, being like, yeah, people are people are free to not take what I'm offering. He's not even really surprised by it, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, and he says, let your peace return to you. It's almost like, like Jesus has this idea that like no one is able to take away your peace if you don't want them to. Um, and what if, 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 if in Luke, Jesus is like a picture of God. God is one in Luke who has a peace that he holds on to, that God holds on to, that no one can take away. That's kind of interesting. Um, um, third thing, what, what, what is God like in, in this passage? He's not challenged by evil, even embodied evil is what I wrote. Like, like Jesus is like, yeah, I saw Satan falling and you guys go and just with my name alone, you cast out demons, stuff like that. It's not like they're like waging war. It's not like they're like getting trained and like putting on armor and going out and having this epic battle where it's like some of us will fall, but you know, we will win in the day, hopefully, or something like that. It's like, no, just go out and just use my name and cast them out, like throw them aside. Like, like again, kind of a, an interesting thing in Luke is that um, Luke seems to have this idea um, and he's using the Jesus story to teach this idea that like evil is like real in the world. Like you have like these evil figures of demons and the devil and Satan, you know, and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem like Jesus is particularly challenged by them. Like they're more of like a nuisance than as like real, real opposition. Um, it's, it's not dualism. Like there's evil and good in the world, but it's not like it's an always ongoing struggle and conflict. Jesus doesn't even seem worried about them. In a sense, he's more interested in going and just doing good things. It's kind of interesting. Um, that's another thing. Uh, what else is God like? Uh, God engages people. He's asking the lawyer questions and kind of draws him into conversation and wants to hear what he has to say. Um, you know, and he works with him to kind of get at the heart of an issue. It's 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 really interesting. Like Jesus is really engaging with this lawyer um, in the story, um, and. Um, you know, and it's like, even if this lawyer was kind of putting himself as someone who was just there to test Jesus and kind of prove him wrong or something like that, like Jesus then goes ahead and engages with him. 
Um, he's not scared. He doesn't throw the guy out. He's not threatened by the guy. He's like, no, I'm, I want to hear what you have to say. Isn't that's what if God is like that? That's kind of interesting. Um, God is pro Samaritan is what I put in my notes. Like because Samaritans are people like Jesus seems to be for their goodness and for their favor. Like he seems to refuse to get caught up in the rivalry between Israel and Samaria of arguing about who's the right one politically or who's the right one religiously or whatever. He then tells a story, even after Samaritans have personally rejected him, he tells a story where they are the hero. Um, this is, this is God actively loving those who would make himself, who would make themselves like his enemies. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, and in the midst of the story, we have Jesus using someone who even the people he identifies with in Israel, um, believe are wrong. Like these Samaritans who kind of religiously and politically like have things just wrong. Um, he makes them the hero in the story, not by becoming Israelites, but by just showing mercy, Jesus, God seems to have this idea in Luke and it's shown here in the story that God considers mercy more important than religious correctness, for lack of a better term, like than correct practice and belief and ancestry. The more important thing is mercy. So as Jesus has already said earlier in the book of Luke, where he says, you know, like be merciful as your father is merciful and he substitutes mercy for holiness. Um, the the hero in the story is simply like the one who the one who loved God and loved neighbor like as they say it's summed up in just this person showing mercy like which of them showed mercy which of them was the neighbor so it's really interesting and uh, lastly God is pro women like he actively invites Mary and Martha to abandon and break social customs in order to be his disciples and his followers and have a good close relationship with him which is interesting. Um, question number two, lo-fi question two, what are people like in this story? Well, um, as they travel around, um, you have Jesus preparing his disciples to be rejected. So sometimes people reject God, or if you want to say it another way, sometimes people reject goodness in the world. Like, so like Jesus and his people are going around doing good things and they're going to be rejected by some towns. So even Jesus who says, I went into your towns and I did great deeds of power and yet still you were unrepentant. Like some people, they have a line and they will not cross it. Um, even when sadly, in, at least in the story of Luke, when it's God showing up at their town and saying, come and do this or change in this way, and they won't do it. Like some people just, that's that's what they do, which is interesting. Um, people, number two, are invited and empowered to be got part of the kingdom of God, to be part of the saving work that Jesus is doing in the world. So specifically in the story, they're given power and authority to go cast out demons and go around and travel around and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's the same thing that Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, yeah, you guys are going to do it to get in groups and go from town to town. Interesting. Um, people number three can do everything right and still miss the heart slash core slash point of the thing itself. And in this case, it's religion. So the priest and the Levite in Jesus's story, um, are keeping all the laws and keeping the customs, but because they're not merciful, they've missed the point and they're not the heroes of the story. And in the same way, it's followed by the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is doing everything right. She's following the custom and she's being nice and caring and welcoming in the same way that some people in the same chapter aren't welcoming to Jesus. But there's a better thing that she's missed and that she's missed her invitation and opportunity to be one of Jesus's followers and hear his teachings. And, um, and, uh, we don't get a conclusion to that story. It's not like, Oh, and then Martha went and sat down or, or, and then Martha went back to the kitchen because that's where she thought that she should be. It's kind of left open-ended and maybe that's there for a question to, for us to answer, you know, for, for it's open-ended. Like some people are like this and some people are like that. That's, that maybe is a very good kitchen conversation for us to have of which, which do we think we are? We think we're missing the heart or point of thing. We'll see what happens when we get to that episode. Um, and then lastly, number three, um, lo-fi question. Why would Luke, would people tell Luke this story for Luke to then choose amongst many stories to write it down, um, for then people to carry around, for then people to put into a canon of scripture, for then people to continue to read and read over and over and over again for a long, long time now. Um, why this story? Um, this story has, has a couple of key things in this, in the little blurb about um, Jesus kind of gathering people together to empower them and send them out. 
it's it seems as if they have this idea that as part of their religion, as part of their practice of living a certain way in the world, they are empowered and are maybe also in the business of empowering others to go about to do good things in the world. Like, like, like so many people, an increasing number of people from 12 to 70 are invited to go and do what Jesus does in the world. It's not like a select elite group, like the number of people invited to do that keeps growing and growing and growing. And you'll see that it's kind of part of the Christian church. Like they kind of see themselves as being like, oh, we go and do what Jesus does. We are disciples of Jesus in the same way that people then were. And not just us and a select special group, but everyone is invited to be involved to go do it. Even non-priests and even women and even a whole bunch of other people were all invited to go do that work that Jesus is doing in the world, which is kind of interesting. And they can kind of get that from this story. I wonder if maybe that's why they they made sure that, you know, to tell Luke and Luke made sure to write it down, like the story about, wow, Jesus keeps getting bigger and bigger groups of people to go out and do good things. It's not, it's not a one man show. Um, why else would they keep the story around? Maybe it reminds them of their place in the grand scheme of the world. So if there's a meta narrative of the entire universe and like it, it's, it's good and evil and there's like these forces in the world and good things and bad things happening, um, what does that look like and how strong is evil and what, how strong is good? And are they always in conflict or whatever? Like these are questions that religions usually try and answer, you know, in, in their concept of what's going on in the, in the universe. And here we get a glimpse of that because, um, Jesus is like, yeah, Satan's falling from heaven. Like, it's not like the world is enslaved to evil or controlled or dominated, you know, it's like the world is doomed to be evil in the way that some stories about the universe might, make it out to be it's like evil is still present but it's definitely at least outmatched by good like even by his name alone like evil falls away you know um so that's kind of interesting um um so maybe that's why they kind of kept the story around because it tells them something very unique about the world and about the meta narrative of their tradition that would kind of also change the way that they lived in the world like, oh, like, we're not losing here. Like, evil isn't winning over. Like, it's it's here, but it's not winning. And that's kind of different. Um, there's less anxiety than if evil is equal to good, I guess. Um, number three, why do I think people would keep the story around? It shows, um, it demonstrates, again, God's value of mercy, kind of in contrast to other things that God might also think is very important, like holiness or religious practice or custom or something like that. Um, in the story, like in the little good Samaritan story, it's kind of as if Jesus is teaching a lesson that says all of our religion, you can be a priest and a Levite and have your bloodline be the right one and follow all the rules and stuff like that. But it's nothing if you're not merciful, like a mercy is the primary characteristic that Jesus wants people to emulate, um, in trying to be like God. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, it almost seems by making by using a Samaritan in the story that God prefers merciful enemies, quote unquote, over hateful or selfish, devout people. And that's kind of interesting. Um, and so maybe people carry the story because it's a reminder to them of what kind of people and what kind of priorities they believe that God wants them to have in the world. That, yes, customs and, and religious rules and faith and things like that are important, but we've missed it altogether if it's not leading us to be a more merciful, caring people towards all people and not towards just a select group. If your community believed that that story was true and if they believed in a god that wanted them to be like that in the world that would make you a very distinct kind of people and movement and community in the world and so i wonder if they keep the story around because they want to be that kind of people in the world and lastly they probably keep the story around because again it reiterates that god is very um supportive of and sees women as being equal people in the world to men. Um, remember at the time that Luke is writing and as, at the time that Luke is alive, you have women and we'll see, we've seen them already and we'll see them more, especially if you read the book of Acts, you have women planting and leading whole churches and communities of faith. Um, at the time that Luke is writing, 
And this story in particular might be something that they reflect back on to say, yes, I'm allowed to do this. Yes, God views me as an equal person. And that men could also look back on and read and say, oh, yes, I need to remember that women are equal people to God. Um, And that if we have a social custom that keeps them away from experiencing God equally, we need to allow women to break those customs in the way that Jesus did. Interesting. That's in the book of Luke, you guys. Um, so yeah, um, those that's our three lo-fi questions. Thank you guys for listening. If you made it all the way through, I look forward to hearing what you saw. How did you see God in the story? What's God like? Especially if you're not religious. I would love to hear what you think God is portrayed like in this chapter. Um, you know, and what people are like and what the world is like. And why why do you think that people might have thought that this story is important? I want to hear your thoughts. Um, in the tag in just a second, you'll hear all the ways that you can get in touch with us and um, and follow us on Facebook and, and, and get in touch and share your thoughts with me because I want to learn from you. I'm looking forward to it, you guys. Um, thank you for listening. This has been fun for me sitting in my hotel room. I'm going to get something to drink, something to eat. Take care. Have a good week, everyone. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lo-fi at kevinlester.net, and that's lo-fi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lo-fi kevin with no dash again, so at lo-fi kevin. Um, That's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.